I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash recommend today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. KMOX at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Nothing impossible on King of OX. A lot of innovation and technology on tap on this week's program. Michael Calhoun along with Travis Sheridan. And we've got, uh, first of all, we're going to talk with somebody who's hopefully is familiar to people across the St. Louis area. We've been giving the COVID updates uh, three times a week uh, lately. Uh, Dr. Alexander Garza is head of the St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force. He previously worked as, I believe, the chief medical officer for the Department of Homeland Security. But uh, now, Travis, he's joining the Consumer Technology Association, partnering with uh, companies ranging from Microsoft to CVS to figure out how technology can help with COVID response. I mean, I, I think what, I, what I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. Garza about is this is, a, this is a major problem. Of course, pandemics are major problems, but we have technology that we've never had available to us before. Can technology and innovation help us address the pandemic? And I'm, I'm sure he has some thoughts on that. I'll be interested to hear about the temperature-taking drones. <laughs> and then after we talk with Dr. Garza, we'll talk about Grants to Business, a program from BioSTL. We'll talk with the lead on that program and also an executive from a company that has benefited uh, Grants to Business. You know, it's tough enough when you're uh, doing medical research, trying to invent new treatments, going out and fundraising or applying for grants that's something you really have time for. And I would imagine most of the people that are trying to run their business don't have a lot of grant writing experience. And, and there are dollars left on the table. Or if you think about it another way, that money might go to another state or another city. And so BioSTL and through some of their programs, specifically BioGenerator, uh, are helping local entrepreneurs in the biotech area secure some of that federal funding. And then being more intentional about economic development in the city, uh, they just released in the last few days what's called the Equitable Economic Development Framework. And I'll talk with Otis Williams from the St. Louis Development Corporation about the changes they're making. He says they're actually uh, really changing how they spur development. Uh, they're really focusing on disinvested areas of the city. A lot of the focus in the past, Travis, has been on the Central Corridor, basically the Arch to Clayton, that stretch. And, you know, I think it's really interesting about this plan. Uh, first of all, I don't know if St. Louis has had a comprehensive economic development plan or strategy in the past. It sure hasn't seemed like it has. Just uh, any, all the any kind of a general plan, let alone one that right. focuses on equitable economic development. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's really the critical piece here. I mean, we're coming out of, you know, several years of uh, racial unrest and disinvestment, and to see the, the region put a plan like this together. I mean, the, the proof will be 
in the execution of the plan always. But uh, I'm glad to see this is finally moving forward. Yeah, will it have dust on the shelf a year from now? Always the question. So we've got Dr. Garza up first, and then grants to business, and then equitable economic development, all on this edition of Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL. Stick around. We'll jump right into it. King OX, at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Michael and Travis with you on our weekly conversation about local innovation. And, of course, COVID-19 is looming large over just about every aspect of society right now, including technology and innovation. And joining us on the program is Dr. Alex Garza, who's the head of the St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force, but is taking on a new role as well nationally when it comes to technology. Travis? Yeah, Dr. Garza, thanks so much for joining us. Can you, first of all, tell us a little bit about the the National Committee on Technology and, and what its purpose is? Sure, sure. So um, uh, I think as, as uh, most people know, this is um, the, uh, the Consumer Technology Association, the CTA. Uh, I think most people know them for putting on this. Was really, it's a worldwide um, technology uh, meeting every year, which will be held virtually this year, obviously. Um, and so as uh, they were looking into how can technology help in the pandemic, um, they decided to form a, uh, a work group or a committee and uh, asked if I would um, help co-chair this along with the, Dr. David Rue, who's the chief medical officer for Microsoft. And really the intent of the committee was to pull together some of the uh, large corporations involved in healthcare um, to see what sort of technology can help assist uh, in a pandemic, um, you know, to, to better serve the population and to make better decision making, things like that. Is this more uh, software or hardware oriented, do you think, when it comes to figuring out how to better address COVID? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. And so that, that's one of the challenges of, of this group is trying to narrow the scope on what should we be focusing on. So if you think about the pandemic and everything that occurs within the pandemic, it's a, it's a pretty big umbrella. And so uh, part of our initial meetings are to make sure that we're narrowing the scope to the things that we think we can impact. So for instance, um, there's a huge, as everybody understands, there's a huge uh, need for data. Uh, some of it is within public health, some is within the healthcare systems. And so uh, thinking about how we can collect, uh, project, and use data for better decision-making uh, would be one thing. But, but then things that are specific as well to the delivery of healthcare. Uh, such as wearable technology for people quarantining at home or um, healthcare systems uh, coming up with different algorithms on how to treat uh, patients. So there's a whole, um, uh, there's a whole lot of different directions you could go. Um, but we want to try and stick to what are the, some of those big things that we could have the most impact on uh, by using technology. Dr. Garza, I would imagine, and I know that telemedicine has been evolving over the you know, mm -hmm. over a number of years, but uh, in right. the midst of a pandemic, did that? Did you see an acceleration in the use and adoption of telemedicine? Absolutely, uh, it was remarkable um, how much it pushed telemedicine to the forefront. So, as we were uh, 
ramping up our our operations in response to the pandemic. I'm just talking here locally with SSM. Um, you, you know, our our our, um, our our person who was in charge of of telehealth. Of course, they had their uh, strategic goals saying, hey, we want to have X percentage of people using our telemedicine platform by the end of the year. And, of course, we blew through that uh, within a couple of weeks and quadrupled what we thought we were going to hit. Um, But that was because of necessity. We were shutting down our clinics. We were shutting down our hospitals. But that did a couple of things. First, it, it showed us, yeah, we can do this. Um, second, it, it, it showed us, gosh, we have to uh, work through a lot of these technological issues so that you can go to scale uh, with this. And then the third was it was a grand experiment on how providers and patients uh, were going to use a telemedicine platform. So uh, people such as clinicians that said, you know, I don't want to use telemedicine because I need that face-to-face uh, interaction with the patient. Uh, we're forced to use it now. And uh, some of them, not all of them, but but a good percentage of them walked away saying, look, I think this can work. Um, you know, I had a good experience with it. And the same thing with patients. Um, it was convenient for them. They were able to access their clinicians in a much more rapid fashion, no having to get in a car and drive. And so it was really this, this really... Um, uh, sort of uh, experiment that was foisted upon us that really showed, yes, we can do this. Yes, it can uh, provide uh, good health care to our patients and that people would be accepting of it. Now, that there's some challenges, you know, with some uh, generational uh, issues. So people that are, weren't used to using technology before had to, you know, be taught how to how to do um, telephone or, or video conferencing, things like that. But but once you get past that barrier, um, people were, were really accepting of it. Well, I, th- I think my grandmother has been a better uh, Zoom user than I have. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and innovation. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And we've seen this uh, in our school systems where schools are suddenly uh, thrust upon into a, a virtual right. learning environment. And now we're seeing this in, in the healthcare sector as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It, it certainly did push us to adopt uh, faster and farther than we would have otherwise. Yeah, some of these technology, I mean, telehealth is not necessarily new. There had been some services, I think, you know, like Roman mm-hmm. really directed at a specific market or a specific reason right. why people may not go to an in-person doctor. But necessity, do you think that this is pushing us to adopt a telehealth or whether it's other kinds of technologies that maybe existed and maybe had been available but didn't didn't have a need, people didn't feel compelled to use them? Do you think that that change in behavior mm-hmm. will stick around after the pandemic? I think it will. Um, so there's, um, we talk about this in healthcare a lot um, during the pandemic. What things have we learned in the pandemic that we need to hold on to once the pandemic, uh, you know, subsides? So how is this helping us develop our strategic approach going forward? I don't think that there's going to be. There'll be a um, somewhat of a step back from. From telehealth, because people still still want to go see their physician. And sometimes you need to go see your physician, but if you segment um, that population, so things that don't require a face-to-face uh, physician visit or nurse practitioner or PA or whomever the healthcare provider is, um, will will most likely be preferentially 
preferentially shunted to, towards more telehealth. And really, it's only those um, those conditions that absolutely require a face-to-face uh, will be reserved for for that um, very labor-intensive and and time-intensive uh, uh, patient-care provider um, relationship. And that's uh, amongst a, a number of things that um, we've seen in the pandemic um, that that are really going to, I think, uh, push us forward faster in in technology and healthcare. Well, Dr. Garza, you mentioned uh, the big the big data aspect of, mm-hmm. of a pandemic and collecting that data and the, the sources of of those data. You know, what are some ways that you maybe this committee will investigate uh, using data for predictive purposes to identify future hotspots or zones that uh, that may appear safe now, but there but the data are suggesting it, it could be uh, you know detrimental or, or hazardous down the road. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, and, and we've seen that here locally as well. Uh, so, part of the challenge that you have is uh, who owns the data, and then how can you aggregate data quickly enough in order to identify uh, trends and patterns, right? And so, if we have patients, and so that was one of the beauties, I think, of of us forming this task force is we all agreed to share all of our data, and so we send data to one single point. Um, so that uh, we can get a sort of whole of of a view of what is going on in the community instead of it just being SSM patients and BJC patients and Mercy patients and St. Luke's patients. Um, and that's really what you need uh, to get that complete 360 view of what is going on in the community. So how does that benefit you then? So then you can start heat mapping and saying, where are all of our admitted patients coming from? Well, we can narrow it down then to the to actually a street address and say, this is where they're coming from. What is at that street address? Hey, nursing home XYZ is at this street address. And we've noticed that, I'm just making this up, 10 patients have come out of that nursing home in the last week. Now, they were distributed to four different hospitals, so you wouldn't have seen that if you were just one hospital. But aggregating that data and then projecting it onto a map, you can say, hey, there's something going on here. We need to send whomever, the public health department, somebody over there to figure out what's going on and to, to get control of this outbreak. Otherwise, um, it, it wouldn't have been uh, aggregated in such a way. One of the things that I've heard of recently, uh, I have some colleagues that are in Sydney, Australia, and mm-hmm. in Australia, they're using uh, testing water streams, wastewater streams, for uh-huh. uh, to identify antibodies in the wastewater, much like we've done uh, to identify opioids or drugs in, in wastewater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a very novel way to use a data stream, a uh, little mm-hmm. water stream in this case, uh, to identify mm-hmm. hotspots and start uh, administering greater, greater treatment in specific areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Th- I think that's a, a fascinating um, new tool in the pandemic, which is environmental sampling instead of instead of just human sampling. And so, um, it actually detects virus, not the antibody. So, okay. because you shed virus in your stool, um, and so it shows up in wastewater, and it's actually the same test, the same test platform uh, that we use when we're trying to find virus in human samples. It's all polymerase chain reaction or PCR-based testing. Um, Now there's a little, you know, you have to do some different techniques in order to extract the virus and stuff like that. 
but it could be a useful tool to understand what is the amount of virus in the population. And it's been used um, not only uh, there, I think you said New Zealand or Australia, but it's been used in Europe and it's been used in um, South America as well, where they've actually been able to predict outbreaks uh, before they showed up in human samples. So they were able to detect it in wastewater before it showed up in a community. Now, there are certain challenges with that because, you know, as you know, we have a pretty widespread virus uh, in the community now. And so figuring out what the concentration of virus is in wastewater uh, compared to what's going on in the population is um, you have to figure out what the correlation is there. Um, but there's other environmental sampling as well, whether it's from, you know, surfaces or other places um, that could be useful for places that have a really controlled population. So if you think of things like um, uh, prisons and jails or even schools, if you know the baseline, if the baseline was, hey, there's no virus here from all of your sampling, and then you allow population in, and then you sample it every week, and if you detect something, then then you know, hey, somebody here is infected with the virus and we have to do something um, rather than trying to test every individual that's in the population. And so, again, it's a valuable tool. Um, it's not a end all, uh, but it, it should be used as, you know, sort of a suite of tools that we can use uh, for for the population. And Dr. Garza, uh, when we hopefully get back to being able to gather together, you know, I just read this example uh, given by uh, Vice President of Digital Health at CTA uh, that mm-hmm. drones could be used maybe by, for example, uh, in terms of a reopening to fly over crowds and, and detect temperatures. More on that example and just how could technology help us to get back to normal once we get to that point? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good example. Um, there's been a, a lot of investigation, and in, in I did this uh, work when I was at Homeland Security too, looking at uh, thermal sensors and things like that. Um, so, so the technology is getting better, um, so that you don't have, so you can allow more freedom of movement of people while doing some a wide scale. Um, surveillance, and that sounds like an evil word, but but not really. If you can use thermal cameras, so for instance, in in places where there's going to be a lot of people coming and going, um, you can stand behind the scanner, take a look, and see who is showing up uh, uh, hot on one of the scanners. Pull them aside, take a temperature, ask questions, all of those things, rather than having to stop every individual um, to take their temperature and to ask them questions. So it's a way of trying to detect signal from noise. Now, thermal scanners, of course, are not, um, they're not foolproof. Uh, There's there's still a a little bit of air in them, but, uh, you know, anything that you can do um, to allow the economy to open up, to allow uh, more freedom of movement, all of those things. So minimize the disruption while still being able to detect where the possible cases are is a good thing. Well, Dr. Garza, thank you so much for your time talking about this with us. Absolutely. Anytime. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Alex Garza, head of the St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force. Coming up on Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL, we're going to talk about grants to business. Stick around. King of Moex, at your service. 
BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. And Michael and Travis back with you. Let's get the scoop on Grants to Business, a program that's driven $70 million in federal grants to local startups. Joining us on the program is Harry Arader. He's the Director of Entrepreneurship Development at BioSTL and also... We've got Tom Brutnell, who's the VP of R&D at Gateway Biotechnology. Thank you both so much for being with us. Hey, Michael. Thank My you. Pleasure. This is Harry. Er- oh, yeah. And, uh, and Tom Brutnell. So I guess, um, yeah, you, uh, you mentioned $70 million. It's, it's actually $76 million. And okay. uh, this yeah. is a program that we, uh, we uh, deploy a, a series of uh, very intensive resources to help local startup companies in the biotech space win grants from the federal government. And, uh, you know, we started this program about five and a half years ago. At that time, Missouri uh, was unfortunately ranked 29th among the 50 states in terms of winning these grants from the National Institutes from Health or National Institutes of Health. Um, we now rank 19th and we're well on our way to uh, our proper rank, which would be among the top 15. As you probably know, uh, Missouri ranks 18th in terms of population. We thought it would be a good goal for us to try to get to 15th rank. We've been moving ahead two ranks per year among the 50 states. That's actually never happened before. Um, so we're very proud of the program, and uh, we have the systematic approach to winning these grants. And Tom Brutnell is here to represent one of the companies that we've helped. Yeah, so what, what are these grants used for? You mentioned it's for early-stage biotech companies, but how do, how do they use these funds, and what's the average, I guess, award or size for, for an early-stage company? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, most of these grants are through a program called uh, the SBIR program of the federal government. So the federal government requires all federal agencies that spend more than $100 million a year on uh, research to spend a significant percent of that research with small companies. And um, that's really a wise policy because it's a federal program that actually has a return on investment. So amazingly, $8 are returned to the economy for every $1 the federal government invests in small businesses through this grant program. So anyway, uh, as I mentioned, Missouri was really just not doing very well at winning these grants, which is, to answer your question, they range from 250000 for the very early stage, so those are the Phase 1 grants, and then the Phase 2 grants are anywhere from 2 to $3 million. And, you know, that's, so that adds up to be some, some significant money for an early-stage company, and, you know, that's money that doesn't have to be raised as venture capital. So these are grants. It's totally non-dilutive to the company. In other words, it never has to be paid back. It's just the federal government's, you know, uh, program designed to stimulate the knowledge economy. And, uh, you know, we work mostly with the NIH because most of our companies are involved in human health. But it's also worth pointing out that the federal government invests in research in a lot of different areas. And we're looking at ways to expand the program to serve the needs not only of the NIH, but also the National Science Foundation, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Energy, uh, the Department of Defense, and also the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. So 
Uh, we started with the NIH. We've had great growth. Uh, we're expecting to grow the program significantly as we get into those other pools of funding. And Tom, uh, Tom Burnell is also with us. He's the vice president of R&D for Gateway Biotechnology. Your company has been the recipient of some of these grants. Uh, talk, tell us a little bit about how this has impacted your business specifically. Yeah, that's it's great. Thanks. Um, you know, we were founded actually by members of the WashU faculty um, as a company that was developing drugs to prevent noise-induced hearing loss and tinnitus. And so we had a, a strong sort of academic foundation. They're all leaders in the field. But what we really lacked was the business experience. And, you know, through Harry's program of, of really mentorship um, and introductions, we were able to actually develop and, and hone that business model um, much better than we could have on our own. Uh, we also participated in a workshop that Harry's team led at BioGenerator specifically on writing these SCTR and SBIR grants, which are a little different from your standard uh, research grants. So uh, after participating in that workshop, um, talking with Harry one-on-one, -on -one, um, really kind of going into the weeds on the proposal, we were successful um, at landing a, a phase two SBIR grant, uh, and that brought in slightly over $2 million. Uh, It just started in July. And as Harry said, you know, one of the real um, value adds with those grants is they're completely non-dilutive. So, you know, that's $2 million that uh, is not going to have to be paid back to a, as a loan or, or is going to be um, basically um, paid back to venture capital. So it, it allows us to really continue on the research direction that we had originally set out um, on and it also gives us a chance to do some of those business development activities. Some of that money um, we can we can kind of earmark specifically for business development, which you, you really can't do in a standard grant application. Right, and Tom's being characteristically modest because he's also he's not mentioning that in addition to the three million dollar grant that Gateway won from NIH, they have also won a ten million dollar grant to develop the product from the uh, from the Department of Defense. That uh, Army grant we got, Department of Army, actually, that's a collaboration with WashU as well. So I, I think, you know, it's all part of this, this St. Louis ecosystem, which is really important. I, I know it's, it's easy to sort of pay lip service to that term ecosystem, but, you know, when you're a small company, it's very easy to get sort of isolated in, a, in an office space or in a building and not have that, that essential network that allows you to innovate, bounce ideas, um, in, you know, and, and sometimes fail. But, you know, we can also succeed in a big way when we have uh, good partners. And the Army grant is a, is a great example of that. We're starting a phase two clinical trial with um, Craig Buckman and, and uh, others at, at WashU to test one of our lead candidates in its ability to prevent noise-induced hearing loss. And again, BioGenerator has been critical um, in helping us make those connections, making those, those introductions, and then helping us in developing the grant uh, uh, strategy. Harry, I want to ask a follow-up question to something that uh, Tom just mentioned, and that is uh, the BioGenerator uh, resources and this collaborative ecosystem. I would imagine that the applications coming out of St. Louis might be more competitive 
because of an asset like Biogenerator, right? Like the, uh, these early stage companies can get money from the government, but they don't have to go out and buy all of their, spend that money on their own equipment. They can leverage the shared equipment and the shared lab space at Biogenerator. How have you seen the, the asset of Biogenerator really help support uh, these early stage entrepreneurs and, and their use of funds from these grants? Yeah, I think that's a great question and I appreciate it. So, so Biogenerator does a lot of stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, our original mission and still our core mission is to actually do, invest, you know, like a venture capitalist into these, you know, early stage companies. So, you know, to give you a sense of scale there, you know, we are usually the first investor in, in fact, essentially always the first investor in. We've invested about $25 million over the last many years. Uh, but the companies that we have, you know, been the, the first lead investor in have then gone on to raise over a billion dollars. So that's a lot of money to come into St. Louis. And 85% of that comes from outside of the state. And that, now, that's on, the, that's on the dilutive funding side. So uh, that's, that's our investment mission. As you mentioned, we also provide an incubator function. So we provide a, a state-of-the-art biochemistry laboratory and uh, about 40,000 square feet. We have 60 small companies in uh, that, that space, ranging in size from, uh, you know, one scientist in a dream to several <laughs> scientists like, uh, like uh, Gateway. And then our largest uh, company, uh, Arch Oncology, they have got about 24 scientists. So, you know, they all share that lab space. And, you know, having that asset is a huge competitive advantage for the companies that work with us. We also then provide this systematic approach to winning the grant. So as Tom mentioned, Gateway participated in our training event. So, but a lot of communities provide training. Uh, we just, we use training. It's very important, but we use that just as the open end of the funnel. And then uh, for, we then immediately after training provide an assessment as to who's got a good chance to win a grant in this current grant cycle. And then we pay consultants to work on the grants. Uh, to make more competitive applications. So then we perform a, a quality control measure towards the end of the grant cycle where we invite re reviewers from the actual agencies that are going to provide the grants ultimately, and we pay them to provide a mock panel. So we have them give our uh, applicants a, a practice shot on goal, and they get feedback just like they would get it in a, uh, you know, from the NIH or any other agency. But, you know, we pay the reviewers to be extra tough because we want the, you know, the, the applicants to benefit from really tough feedback. And then we provide that feedback to them with still a month to go before the final grant deadline so that they can incorporate that feedback into even stronger applications. So as a result, we have about a 60% success rate with these grants compared to the national average, which is uh, about 17% for phase one grants and uh, about 40% for phase two grants. So our average overall uh, for both phase ones and phase twos is 60%. So, you know, dramatically better uh, results because of a systematic approach. Harry, where can people go to get more information on not just grants to business, but the wide array of help that's available from BioSTL? Yeah. So, um, uh, so BioSTL is our parent organization. Uh, BioSTL.org uh, is our website, and then BioGenerator is the is the investment arm, so the the arm of BioSTL that does 
all the work we talked about this morning. And uh, our, our website is biogenerator.org. Uh, so people can just, you know, uh, check out what we do on the sites. And then, of course, uh, can send, uh, use the contact information provided to get in touch with us if they want to learn more. Director of Entrepreneur Development with BioSTL, Harry Arader, and also the VP of R&D at Gateway Biotechnology, Tom Burtnell. Thank you both so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate your time. All right, stick around. We're going to look at the SLDC Economic Development Plan that was recently released by the city of St. Louis, uh, a plan to be more equitable in how we develop the region. So more Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL, right after this. KMOX, at your service. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible. BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Otis Williams from the St. Louis Development Corporation. Tell me about the Equitable Economic Development Framework. What's the scope of this? What does it cover? Uh, well, the Equitable Economic Development uh, Framework uh, connects people, neighborhoods, and jobs and uh, try to provide an opportunity for growth uh, on an equitable basis across the city. And uh, what we are trying to do now is to uh, get additional input from the public. So today we are posting the final version of the, well, I say the final, next to last version, depending upon the input from the public, uh, of our uh, framework and uh, it will go up on our website, and we hope for a 30-day period, and we hope the public will uh, take a look and provide us with feedback. Now, is this a comprehensive plan for how the city should approach economic development? Uh, It is, uh, and for economic development, it is a comprehensive look at how we should uh, uh, look at uh, moving forward. Uh, It... uh, that's forced a vision to uh, create collaborative opportunities for development and investment and uh, uh, for both uh, people and for our neighborhoods. And so uh, the big knock on us in the past has always been that everything was focused in the central corridor. And so what we want to do is to provide uh, uh, circumstances or situations where uh, people will want to invest and uh, take the risk, if you will, to invest all over the city. What are some of the neighborhoods, districts, intersections, the places that are going to be focuses for this? Well, you know, in our in the report, it identifies employment centers and uh, employment districts. Uh, many of them are the traditional ones, but it also speaks to uh, how to expand uh, and take advantage of some of the land that we might uh, that we have, uh, you know, a lot of uh, that is underutilized. Uh, but we will be focusing also on the corridors, the east-west, north-south corridors. Uh, where there had been, you know, uh, in the past, I call it traditional retail that lined it, uh, uh, you know, almost every uh, every foot of the uh, of the of these corridors. But I think what we will be looking at is how to build around nodes along those corridors and how to then reinvest in those areas that were uh, in the and uh, historically uh, had been uh, retail. But uh, so we will be looking at uh, Natural Bridge, Page. Uh, Gravoy, uh, Cherokee, you know, all of these are, are corridors that have uh, seen some disinvestment, and we would like to see how we might be able to reinvest in those areas. 
Now, obviously, this is a very extensive 400 pages, um, but uh, some of the early feedback that I've seen on social media, uh, some people have said it's more focused to them on uh, places than people, taking a look at uh, you know the demographics of people in the area. Um, and that's a, that's a St. Louis question over the years, is how do we ensure that opportunity in an area uh, extends to those who actually live there? For instance, NGA, how do we make sure that the people who live in the neighborhood uh, have those opportunities. So how how does this uh, address making sure that African Americans in North St. Louis have access to the opportunity that you hope to create? Well, one of the things that we're doing is trying to ensure that neighborhoods are organized and that there's a way to communicate with neighborhoods to get feedback and ensure that they're involved in the process. Um, and many uh, neighborhoods in St. Louis, there is no or, uh, organization or neighborhood organization uh, to fall on and fall in on. And so, uh, one of our goals here is to ensure that we have uh, uh, neighborhood organizations all over, community development organizations, uh, such that they can provide their input and that uh, we can provide resources to them. What are the industries that this report identifies as, as both being the best bets and, and having the best chance uh, for uh, success, and specifically for North St. Louis? What are the different industries um, that you are targeting with this? Well, you know, the traditional uh, industry clusters are always there, which is uh, healthcare, education, which are sort of, and finance, those are traditional in St. Louis, particularly in the city with uh, uh, the uh, hospital systems and finance systems that are there and the universities. Uh, but the, I call them the non-traditional uh, clusters, which is city building, business-to-business uh, uh, contact uh, such that uh, we can get people into the supply chain, both uh, to provide those needed services to assist businesses as they grow uh, and to maintain the business that we currently have. Uh, uh, we have organized around uh, a couple themes. One is opportunity to thrive, and the other is clusters. Uh, the clusters are those clusters I just mentioned, uh, and uh, we are uh, looking just get feedback on uh, if there are things that people think that we may have missed or if there are things that uh, has a, a nuance to it that we need to be able to consider, we're looking for that feedback. Is this a, a list of goals and aspirations, or is there also a roadmap and instruction manual, so to speak, on how to accomplish this? Uh, well, you know, uh, we've developed all this feedback, and, and uh, we came up with 10 primary goals, but wrapped around those 10 goals are 56 uh, strategies, if you will, for implementation. And uh, we uh, have a lead person for each of the strategies currently, but we also have room for support uh, organizations to rally around. And if you think that you might do, do better leading uh, a, a particular strategy, uh, we, we're happy to have that you know, consideration because this is a team effort. Uh, no one organization is going to be able to pull this off, and so we're going to need all of uh, public, private, uh, nonprofits uh, to, uh, to fall in on this one and try and help us. Over the years, uh, the decades, uh, the joke is that there have been a lot of plans and there's a lot of dust on those plans. Uh, so talk about the commitment to, to really following through on this, especially given, as you mentioned, there has been such a focus on the Central Corridor. Uh, and a lot of residents north of Del Mar say that they have not had a lot of attention. The, the commitment to really following through and, and bringing this, this plan to fruition. 
Well, uh, we're committed so much that we're looking at how we might reorganize the St. Louis Development Corporation to ensure that we have intentional commitment to various geographies and around various clusters such that we are living it day to day uh, and trying to, uh, uh, you know, ensure that we get these things accomplished. In addition, we have a set of metrics that uh, we have established that we will be reporting on on a periodic basis. And one of our requirements is to report on a set of metrics to the Board of Aldermen annually. So I think it will maintain our attention because we, you know, there's a report card. You know, education uh, is a huge aspect of this. Companies across the country are hurting for skilled workers. And as they look at cities, that's really how they evaluate whether they're going to open a presence is can we scale up and hire? And St. Louis has, um, in terms of uh, people who could be trained up and made available for these jobs and also need the jobs, an incredible opportunity for a big workforce. What aspect does education and jobs training play in this? Uh, it's, it's huge in the sense that uh, we will be working with our community colleges, uh, with our universities, to try and build build a workforce. Uh, not everyone is going to uh, have a college uh, degree, but there are technical uh, t- training uh, efforts that, that will be ongoing to try and help fill the you know the, the needs of the of the uh, uh, employers here in the city and region. And uh, so, uh, you know, the, the basis for, for all of this and the success will be if we can train our workforce, we can then attract uh, those companies that are looking for a place uh, to be, particularly in, uh, with our low cost uh, of living and with uh, the amenities that we have in this, uh, in this region, uh, that we think that uh, this would be a great, great time to focus in on, uh, one, training uh, and ensuring that we have a uh, uh, a, a workforce that would be attractive to uh, companies that are looking for a place to locate. Well, Otis, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right, that's our show this week. Thanks for listening. Always download and share the podcast also. We'll be back next week with more Nothing Impossible presented by BioSTL. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.